Please turn your Bibles, uh, if you've got them, to the book of Ruth. If you're using Pew Bibles, uh, which I have provided for you, um, it's early on. I think in the red ones, it's page 185. In the black, it's 222. Joshua judges Ruth. I keep getting uh, messed up. I, I keep thinking it's later in the Bible. It's, it's pretty early on. It's one of the early books. Uh, last week, we began a short series looking at the story of Ruth. And since it is a story, uh, just like when you turn, tune into a, uh, a TV show and maybe you missed the first episode, they give you that little uh, recap at the beginning to say, this is what you missed, here's where we are, so you can kind of jump in. Well, we're going to do chapter two today, but if you weren't here or you've forgotten what chapter one was about, let me remind you. Uh, this book of Ruth, it's not just a love story, it's not just for ladies, it's a story for everyone uh, who lives in this world, because it's a story about where God is in everyday life. Uh, especially where God is when bad things happen. And in Naomi's life, bad things happened. I remember in chapter 1, uh, there was political unrest. They were in the period of the judges, which was a horrible time to live. There was not justice in the land. There was not order. It was anarchy. In the midst of that political unrest, there was also a famine. So Naomi, her family, her husband Elimelech, her two sons, left Israel and went to a different land. Uh, when they moved there, then Naomi lost her husband, he died, and then her two sons died. And so you've got this string of tragedy in her life. She's left by herself with just her two daughters-in-law. And you remember in this culture, in this time, to be a widow, alone, uh, without an advocate, without a, a, a man in your family in this patriarchal society was a very, very dangerous and difficult place to be in. No one to provide for, no one to protect her. She was alone. And so Naomi, we saw over the course of the first chapter, descended into bitterness, such that at the end of chapter 1, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. That's just a joke. That's just cruel. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because my life is bitter. She gave in to hopelessness. But there was a shining star in the midst of that story that, that Ruth did not give in to bitterness. Ruth, instead, was a, a help, an encouragement to Naomi, and she gave this wonderful profession of commitment to her, where she says, where you go, I will go. Where you, where you live, I will live. Your God will be my God. Your people, my people. Where you die, I'll be buried. I'm going to stick with you no matter what. So we, we came to the end of chapter 1 with a bit of a cliffhanger, wondering what's going to happen next. How do you respond? How is Naomi going to respond? to being in the depths of bitterness. How is she going to get out? What's going to happen next? And that's the question I think that, that this chapter has for us as well. Now, when we are in times of hardship, when we're in times of temptation to bitterness and to despair, how are we going to respond? How are you going to respond? Now, we'll, we'll look at chapter 2 and see how Ruth responds. And, and, and here's, I'll, I'll give it away. We should respond like that. Uh, but before we get into how Ruth responds, I just want to set the stage a little bit by thinking about what are some options. What are different ways that you could respond to times of hardship and bitterness? Um, one option that I, I thought of is I think that, that some people or some of us in certain situ situations, when we experience hard times, we respond by trusting in luck. Okay, You respond by trusting in luck. Now what I mean by that I'm using that word very broadly, luck, in the sense of believing in, in fate or, or karma or destiny. It's this, uh, this, this belief that there's you know, just some force in charge of what's going on, that, that things are going to work out a certain way, 
And what's going to happen is what's going to happen. Um, now, people might not formally say that. You don't see a lot of people walking around saying, like, I'm a believer in luck, as if it's a religion. Uh, but a lot of us display our, um, our belief or our trust in luck in the way that we talk, right? Uh, if you're more of an optimistic person, when bad things happen, you might say something like, yeah, I've had a string of bad luck, but it's bound to turn soon. Okay, that's, that's a statement of belief in luck. You say, yeah, it's things, I've had some bad luck, some things have happened, it, it's been bad luck, but it's bound to turn. That's how optimists think. They say, you know, over the long haul, uh, luck, the universe, karma, destiny, it's in my favor, and it'll all work out eventually. Uh, or if you're more of a pessimist, though, you might say something like, that's just my luck. Yeah, just my luck. Well, more rotten luck. You say, yeah, there is luck, there is destiny, karma, whatever, and it's against me. And it's going to turn out the way it's going to turn out, and it's probably going to be against me because I've just got rotten luck. Okay. Now, if, if, if you respond to tragedy this way, the, the fruit of that sort of belief is mostly that you're just going to do nothing. And this is how you view the world, as if there's this force in charge of it, and, and, and you, either it's good or it's bad, it's going to happen. You don't have a lot of motivation to do a lot for yourself. You just do nothing. And a lot of times while you're doing nothing, there's also an underlying current of anxiety, because, as any gambler will tell you, luck is a very fickle mistress. Uh, you, you can't rely on luck, and so you think, well, I hope something good happens, but it might not. And so you, you, just, you just live in this fear and lethargy. Now just diagnostic question. Um, this is possible even for Christians to fall into this pattern of behavior. So just look at yourself a little bit and think, now when trouble happens in my life, do I find myself doing nothing? And, and being anxious? Is that, is that where you fall? Okay, if, if that's where you fall, then you might be trusting in luck. Uh, another option, which is much more popular now, is, is the, it's the Olympic approach. Uh, the other option is to trust in yourself. These are the folks who say, there's no such thing as luck, you have to make your own luck. Or as the, the commercial that's running on, on TV right now with Ryan Lochte, the swimmer, he says, luck didn't take me to London, I swam here. See that one? So there's no such thing as luck, there's me. You are the captain of your destiny. These are on, these are on, on inspirational posters and you know, Olympic uh, commercials. You are in charge of your life. So when bad things happen, you need to pull yourself up by bootstraps and you need to make your own luck. You need to make things happen in your favor. It's all up to you. Now, whereas the tendency in the people who just trust in luck is to do nothing, the tendency of those who trust in themselves is to do way too much. Say, bad things happen, it's all on me. If I'm still stuck in a bad situation, it's all my fault, and so I've got to work harder, and you just get exhausted. And you're still anxious. Because if it all depends on you, I mean, you know that you're not reliable. You know that you can't make everything happen that you want to happen. Ryan Lockie might have swam to London, but he didn't win gold in every event. He worked as hard as he could, but he's not in control. And so you're anxious. You wonder if you're doing enough. Now, Ruth 2, this, the second chapter of Ruth, and in, in in what Ruth does in this chapter, provides for us, I think, a much better option. Instead of trusting in luck or trusting in herself, what Ruth models for us is a trust in God. And instead of having that anxiety uh, that comes from either doing nothing or doing too much, you see in her a peace that comes from trusting God and just doing the next right thing. 
So if you're in your Bibles, look at Luke chapter 2. We'll just read our way through it, and I want to show you how Ruth provides for us this proper response to, um, to hard times. First point on your outline is that Ruth trusts God and does the next right thing. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Okay, we'll just stop there. We'll, we'll read a little bit. I'll talk about it, and then we'll move our way through the chapter. Uh, this first verse that we see here, this is an aside. Okay, you've got to recognize this. This is a secret between the narrator and us. Okay, Naomi, Ruth, they don't know about this. This is inside information that we're getting here. There's a guy by the name of Boaz. He's related to Naomi's dead husband, which is a good thing because it means he's going to be one who can take care of them. And he's a worthy man. He's a wealthy man. Uh, he is named Boaz, and he, he exists. Okay? Now, this is a secret for us, but, but Naomi and Ruth, as far as they know, uh, this guy is, is not around. Uh, it's just them by themselves uh, with no one to take care of them. So they're in a very difficult situation. What does Ruth do in this situation? Okay, well, she could trust in luck. She could say, uh, what will be will be. Let's just kind of sit around and see what happens. She doesn't do that. Uh, she could also trust in herself and say, okay, we've got to make this happen. Um, you know, what can we do? And she starts scheming and plotting and planning and, and working herself to the bone to get everything figured out th so that she can get her, take care of her and Naomi. You don't, you don't see that frenetic, self-reliant activity. What you see her do is she just says, what's the next right thing that we should do? Uh, well, I, should, I, I could glean. Why don't I do that? Now, you've got to understand what, what gleaning is. Uh, gleaning is part of the Old Testament social safety net. This is your welfare in Old Testament times. Um, it comes from uh, a couple passages in the Old Testament. Uh, one of them is Leviticus 19. Uh, I'll read, read this to you here. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. This is instructions for farmers. And he says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. That's the stuff that's fallen to the ground. Uh, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So this is a, a rule that God instituted. He said, if you're a farmer, uh, efficiency is not the ultimate goal. You, I don't want you to be 100% efficient. I want you to leave the edges of your field and even the stuff that falls in the ground for people who are poor to come by afterwards and to pick up, and they called that gleaning. Now, this is the obvious option that's in front of Ruth, and so she says, look, this is what we can do. I don't have it all figured out, but let's go. I'm just going to go and glean. Uh, now, we know she doesn't have it all figured out because the way she asks Naomi, she says, let me just go to the field and glean uh, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She's just saying, I hope that there's somebody out there who will allow me to glean in this field that will let me find favor. I'm just going to go. I don't have a plan figured out. I don't know exactly what's going to happen next, but I'm just going to go in the fields. I'm going to try to glean, just do the next right thing, and maybe someone will find, I'll find favor in their eyes and be able to glean. Now, you've got to understand, this was not a sure thing. This is the period of the judges. Now, sure, the law of God said you're supposed to let people pick up your gleanings, 
But this is the time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And by and large, when, you know, if you're a farmer, what's right in your own eyes is get every last bit of crop that you can out of it. So she kind of rolls the dice here. She says, well, here's the next thing. I don't have it all figured out. I'm just going to go and see what happens. And they're reading chapter, in verse 3 that she set out to glean, not knowing where she was going. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Imagine that. Now you could read this and you could think, ah, it's luck. It is luck. You see, it really all does boil down into luck. She just happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz. But if you read the Bible um, at all, you know that in the Bible there's no such thing as luck. Uh, What what we have here is one of those literary understatements for effect. The author's saying, oh, it just so happened. What he really means is there's no such thing as an accident. Uh, This would be like with a a husband walks home with flowers on his anniversary. My wife says, oh, is that for our anniversary? He's like, oh, no, I just happened to be at the flower store, and I, I thought I'd pick him up. And it's today our anniversary, really? Oh, I just love you, honey. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> when, when you say, it just, I just so happened, you mean, yeah, I planned it. I, I knew it was going on. It was on purpose. That's what's going on here. It, the author's saying, God is in control. Okay, Ruth doesn't have it all figured out. But she's not trusting in a blind fate. There's a God who's got it all worked out. And as she begins to just do the next right thing, we see that God then showers blessing on her and brings redemption for her and for Naomi. Second point on your outline here then is that God blesses Ruth through Boaz. Let's read verses 4 through 7. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So Boaz shows up. He notices this stranger in his field. He asks the head foreman, Who is this lady? And he says, You know, she's that Moabite. Word's gotten around. Ruth's actions have have become common knowledge in Bethlehem. He says she's that one that everybody's talking about, the one who sacrificed everything to come back with her mother-in-law. And she's been working very hard all day. So Boaz, in response to what he finds out about Ruth, then decides to bless her, verses 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in any other field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? So so Boaz hears about what Ruth has done, and he decides that he's going to go above and beyond the call of duty. He doesn't just let her glean in his field. He calls her in and he says, "Um, I don't want you to glean in any other field. So he's not going to kick her off. He says, you stay here. He, he, he wants her to have a safe place where he can take care of her. He, he tells her to stay close to his women. So right in the action of the gleaning. Uh, she's not forced to stay in the distance where she would be picking up the leftovers of the leftovers. She's right in there. She's getting first crack at the good stuff. And he says, haven't I told my young men not to touch you? He's, he's protecting her. Again, this is the time of the judges. People do what they want. You go to another field, who knows what the young men are going to do to you as a young woman gleaning in the field. But he says, no, I'm going to protect you. You stay here. 
then he offers her water. He says, don't waste time getting your own water. Don't waste time, um, you know, trying to, to, to do that. I want you to focus on gleaning here. If you're thirsty, just drink the water that my guys have already drawn. See, in essence, what Boaz is doing is he's welcoming her into his fold. He's, he's treating her like one of his own workers, going above and beyond what he has to do. And Ruth recognizes this is incredible favor, so she falls down on the ground before him. She says, why? Why are you doing this for me? Verse 11, he says, But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. See, Ruth, she recognizes she doesn't deserve this. She says about why? Why are you treating me so kindly? Really, bare minimum, you just have to let me glean your field. And really, even in this time and day, no, nobody has to let me do that. But Boaz has blessed her so much, she says, why? Why are you doing this for me? And Boaz says, it's very simple. Because of what you've done for your mother-in-law. Verse 11, he says, I've heard about what you did. Saying, that's the reason. Here's the reason why I'm blessing you. Because you gave it all up for your mother-in-law. I'm blessing you because you did what was right. And then verse 12, he says, and may the Lord repay you even more for what you've done. May the Lord give you a full reward. Now, I, I want to point out here that you see there's a connection. There's a connection here between Ruth's action and God's blessing of her. You see that? And, you know, back in, in chapter 1, verse 8, Naomi had prayed for this. She said... Um, Go, each of you, return to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Naomi's prayer, her blessing for Ruth was, may God do to you the same things that you've done for me. May God bless you and be kind to you and faithful to you like you've been faithful to me. And here Boaz is, is fulfilling that prayer. He's saying, I'm blessing you because you did what was right. You blessed your mother-in-law. i got to tell you, this is... Um, this is challenging for me because I'm one of those people, and if, if you want to put a, a label on it, I'm one of those Calvinistic sort of people uh, who believes highly in the sovereignty of God. You know, I think the Bible clearly teaches that God is in control. He's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And so one of my dangers in believing what the Bible clearly teaches, that God's in control, one of my dangers is to fall functionally into that trusting in luck category. You, know, you can be a Christian, you can kind of fall in that same sort of fatalistic category if you have such a high view of the sovereignty of God. Say, so God's going to do what he's going to do, so it doesn't matter what I do. Okay, That's a, it's, it's a Christian error as well. And what, what we have here is another very clear teaching in the Bible, though. Yes, it's very true that God is going to do what he's going to do. But it's also very clear in passages like this that God's blessing is connected with Ruth's action. Why did Ruth get blessed? It's because she did what was right. What, what does he, how does he describe God's blessing in verse 12? It describes it as the Lord's repayment, as a full reward for what she's done. You see, real faith in God does not mean that you sit on your hands and wait for God to bring blessing while you do nothing. That's not Christian faith. Real faith in God is like Ruth. You say, this is the right thing to do. I'm going to go with my mother-in-law. 
This is the right thing to do. I'm going to go gleaning. And as you go do that thing, God responds to your faith and he brings blessing. He brings help. One of the reasons why God might not be blessing you right now, why God might not be delivering you out of your situation, I'm not saying this is the only reason, but one reason might be that you're just not doing anything. And you're just sitting there waiting for God to act and he's saying, I've told you what to do. You need to obey. So God blesses Ruth through Boaz in response to a prayer. Verses 14 through 16, we get Boaz um, finishing uh, his blessing here of Ruth. Uh, at mealtime then, he calls her over. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it to her to glean and do not rebuke her. So Boaz was, was praying just a few verses ago that God would uh, repay Ruth uh, for all of her kindness. And then here he's answering his own prayer. And he's, he's, he's inviting her over to lunch, welcoming her again in the family, giving her food to eat until she's satisfied. I mean, do you recognize how significant that is for a hungry, poor widow? Uh, I mean, she, she and Naomi, who knows the last time they had a meal where they were full. And Boaz says, come on over here. You've been working all day. Eat. And she eats until she's full and she's got some left over. And then as she leaves, he tells the, worker, tells the workers something unheard of. He says, um, not only do I want you to leave the stuff on the ground that's there, but go ahead and pull some extra stuff out. Pull stuff that, that would have gone into Boaz's bank account. He's saying, this, this harvest, you've, you've gleaned it, you put it in bundles, now just take some extra out and throw it on the ground so that she gets a lot. It's really good stuff. I mean, he's just overflowing abundant blessing for Ruth. Boaz is here the means by which God is bringing blessing to Ruth. As Ruth does the next right thing, God works through Boaz to begin to bring restoration and healing. And as Ruth now goes back home to Naomi, we see it, it begins to change um, Mrs. Bitter. It gets to change her to where she begins to have hope in God again. This is number three on your outline. Naomi begins to hope in God again. Uh, verse 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Uh, so you remember, the story of Ruth, in a big picture sense, is a story of the redemption of Naomi. Naomi began with everything, and she lost it, and she got bitter. And here we begin to see the cracks breaking through again. She's beginning to hope, like maybe life isn't over. Maybe God really is watching out for them. Uh, the first positive step happens here. Ruth, uh, she works all day and she gets an ephah of barley, which is an extraordinary amount for a day's work. It's like 29 to 50 pounds. We're not really sure how the conversions work, but it's a lot. Uh, it may be as much as an equivalent of two weeks' wages for a laborer. 
So it's a lot. In one day, she's gleaned all this. So she walks in, and Naomi recognizes right away something exceptional has happened. She says, where did you work? You know, where did you end up that you got this much in one day? And in verse 19, we see Naomi saying the first positive thing she said since chapter 1, verse 8. She says, blessed be the man who took notice of you. She asks, of course, who is it? Who's this guy who blessed you? And this is a wonderful moment because Ruth doesn't know what Naomi knows and what we know. That is that there is a man named Boaz. And Naomi doesn't know what Ruth knows and what we know. Namely that Boaz is the guy who took care of her. And so as Ruth reveals this statement, she says, the person with whom I work today is Boaz. And all of a sudden, the light bulbs go on, and Naomi realizes, Boaz, he's a relative of ours. He's a guy who's related to my husband. He, he might be a redeemer for us. And Ruth now realizes he's more than just a nice guy. He's a guy who might be providing a future and a redemption for them. Because you remember, in that society, the redeemer would be a person who was related to your family, who would come in and who would take care of you. They had the responsibility to take care of you. It might involve redeeming property or marrying you. And so Ruth and Naomi now, as they get their cards together, they realize this Boaz guy might be the one who's going to get us out of this mess. So in verse 21, Ruth says, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they've finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field to be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So she gleans for the, the barley harvest, which takes about a month. Gleans for the wheat harvest, which is about a month. Staying at Boaz's field there all the time. But at the end of it, she's still living with her mother-in-law. And again, we end with the cliffhanger. Well, what's going to happen next? I mean, Boaz has been nice to them. He's provided for them. I'm sure they've got plenty of food. But is that it? Or is it going to be something more? We have to come back next week. Or read your Bibles and find out how it resolves. But as we end the, the sermon today, I'm going to do something similar to last week. Um, See, so this is a story, right? It's a story in your Bible. The stories in our Bible, though, are not just stories there to entertain us. They're the Word of God for us. And so even in the stories, as we look at them, we can appreciate the wonderfulness of the, of the story, of the tale, how it all works out great. We can root for Ruth and Boaz to get together and for God to do wonderful things. But we can also see the principles in God's Word of how it applies to us. Now, you remember last week in chapter 1, said the main message was for those Naomi's. Say, when you're in the midst of suffering, when you're in the midst of bitterness... Don't give up hope because the story's not over. And we're seeing that unfold uh, in the rest of these chapters. I want to take another step today and say, don't give up because the story's not over. Don't trust in luck and do nothing. Don't trust in yourself and do everything. Instead, trust in God and do the next right thing. This is what I want you to take away today. When you're in the midst of, of hardship, when you're in the midst of trouble, it can seem overwhelming. You might want to give up and just do nothing, or you might want to buckle down and take complete control of the situation. But what you need to recognize is that God is in control. The fact that he's in control doesn't mean that you don't do anything. It means that you can go and you can act without having it all figured out. Just do the next right thing and trust that, like God, there will be those events in your life where it just so happened that... 
So I never could have planned that. I never could have made it all work out that way. And yet God is in control. God is working the way for you to get through this hardship that you're in. And he's going to bring blessing as we live in obedience to him. And the blessing that he brings will be abundant enough to shatter your bitterness, just like with Naomi, and to make you begin to hope again that God is in control. Now, I, I base that application on the book of Ruth. But I also want to prove to you that you get the same results if you start with the gospel. Now, you remember the, the, the gospel, I hope. We talk about it a lot here. The, the good news that God is perfect and glorious and holy and he made us for a relationship with him. But through rebellion against him, through our sin, we were alienated from him, we're, we're lost, we're hopeless. But God took it on himself to provide the substitute, to be the substitute for us, that he died on the cross in, in the person of Jesus Christ, taking the death that we deserve and living the life that we should have lived. And if we put our faith in him and we respond with faith and repentance, we get that gift of eternal life and reconciliation with God. Now, now, what does that message have to say to people who like to trust in themselves? What's the gospel have to say to those of us who like to trust in ourselves? Um, it says things are far worse than you think they are. Okay? Your problem is not your problem. Uh, the, the problem that you think you're in right now, the, the problem of, of not having enough money or the problem of uh, a broken relationship or the problem of uh, not having the job that you want or just the problem of being disappointed in something that happened, that's not your problem. Your problem is far deeper than that. Your problem is that you are alienated from God and you could do nothing in yourself to bridge that gap. Oh, but the wonderful news of the gospel is that God has done all that for you. God has done what you could not do and reconciled you with him. Now, if he's done all that, if he, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, has achieved the solution to that problem, uh, you can rest you don't have to do everything. You don't have to take all the problems onto yourself and think that you've got to fix it. God has already solved your fundamental problem. And he's got the power to take care of the other ones. See, the cross humbles us. Humbles us so that we can realize we can't do everything on our own. Okay, but what if you're more the kind of person who trusts in luck? The kind of person who tries to, just, just uh, things will work out, I just don't have to do anything. What does the gospel have to say to those of us like that? The gospel says, remember, God loves you more than you can imagine. I mean, do, do you see how so fundamentally different it is when we say everything happens for a reason and when someone who believes in fate says everything happens for a reason? I, I just heard this this last week at a funeral. Someone said, you know, the, the, the hope that they had, the thing that they were clinging to in the midst of losing someone through sudden death was everything happens for a reason. But that belief, it wasn't grounded in anything. I mean, if you, just, if you just say that as some sort of pie in the sky, everything happens for a reason, what's the proof, what's the guarantee that that reason is a good reason? And maybe everything happens for a reason means that, that you lost your job because somebody sneezed in Tokyo. It's a reason. How does that any comfort for you? Maybe the reason is that the universe doesn't like you. Maybe that's why you're suffering. Is that encouraging? But that's all you've got when you trust in luck. Oh, but what we have is something far better. What we have is what the gospel says. Everything happens for a reason. And, and how do you know that? Because God loved you enough to send his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. 
And if he has done that for you, he will take care of you in every situation. Romans 8.28 says, yes, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for the good of those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. And Romans 8.32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And that trust, that confidence that God is for you, enables you to act. Don't have it all figured out. Just say, I'm just going to do the next right thing. I'm going to trust that God's got it covered. Just step out in faith, and he'll take care of you. You see, when you believe the gospel, your story becomes like the story of Ruth. You say, yeah, it's a happy ending for her. How do I know it's a happy ending for me? Because of the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't have to know how it's going to work out. You can trust that God's in control. Your job is not to have everything figured out to be able to keep all the balls in the air. God's got that covered. Just trust him and do the next right thing. Your story isn't over. Trust God. Do the next thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the encouragement of Ruth, and, and I'm just grateful um, that even beyond these wonderful stories, true as they are, we have the grounding of everything in the ultimate true story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, it is a game changer. Uh, it's a life changer. Lord, I, I pray that you'd help us this week. These are simple concepts, but we need your help to put them into practice. Um, help us to see what the next right thing is. Help us to do it. Help us to let go of our need for control and, and help us to take action when we just want to lay around. Lord, we trust that you're in control and I pray that that would empower us to live lives of faith. And I'm excited to see what you're going to do. Ruth had no idea how you're going to bring an end to this story. And, and we confess, we have no idea what you have in store for us. But we know that it's good and we rest in that hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.